0: I'm going to state up front tonight. I'll be doing a lot of reading. We're going to cover a lot of ground tonight and look at the, the history of, of death in a sense uh, as based on God's word. And part one is that there was a time before death. We need to realize this, that the, the death in a sense is unnatural. It wasn't part of God the creator's design. Death was absent completely. And in in these first readings, we we see that. We also see, though, how Adam and Eve were given free will. And we see how our original parents freely chose to disobey that one command. And how that, that sin, has brought death into the world. So Genesis 1, beginning with verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground. And the wild animals, according to its kind, was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and the stone. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Every day, good, every day, good, every day, good. He creates plants and animals, the highlight of God's creation, mankind. And at the end of that, that sixth day, God saw all that he had made. It was very good, not just good. It's a Hebrew idiom that means complete, perfect. There was no death in God's world. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through through 17, actually. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Again, there's the command. And God gives warning of this thing called death. Now in chapter 3, we have Satan. He's already a fallen angel. He's the deceiver. And he goes after Adam and Eve, and specifically Eve. And he he plants doubt in her heart. Did God really say, you must not eat of this tree in the middle of the garden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 2. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. They freely chose to disobey God. God said there's a consequence and it's this thing called death. And you're going to learn all about it. Now, the, the next verse, or verses, God goes to the devil, God goes to Eve, but then God goes to Adam and states the consequences. To Adam he said... Part two, the beginning of death's reign. So again, God gave the consequence. You chose to do something I said not to do, and you will certainly die. To dust you are. To dust you will return. The physical death did not happen immediately. Spiritual death did, though. There was a separation from Adam and Eve and God. They hid from him. God would have to create faith in their hearts to restore that spiritual separation Adam and Eve in a fallen world, imagine how they felt, walking in shame uh, out of the garden. you think you felt shame, imagine how they felt, having experienced perfection. They start having children. And we see in our next reading that their very first physical death, it was not a natural death, it was a murder. Then the Lord said to Cain, one of Adam and Eve's sons, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is right, sin, excuse me, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see, Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. And God speaking to him, sin is crouching it desires to topple you. But you have to master it. Verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what, you have, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Adam and Eve, again, put yourself in their shoes. God says, said to them, your sin will bring death. They probably had no idea the first death that they would experience would be the, the death of a son at the hands of their other son. What a horrible thing, again, death is. Now, in, in chapter 5 of Genesis, uh, we see the, the record from Adam to Noah. And let me just say that, that the, the Bible, for the, for the most part, is a record of life and death. And it began with Adam. They live longer than, than we do, but there came a day when Adam breathed his final breath, and he died. And we have some examples of that here this is the written account of Adam's family life when God created mankind he made them in the likeness of God he created them male and female and blessed them and he named them mankind when they were created when Adam had lived 130 years he had a son in his own likeness in his own image and he named him Seth after Seth was born Adam lived 800 years had other sons and daughters altogether Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahala. After he became the father of Mahala, Kenan lived 840 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. Please turn with me in your hymnal there's a hymnal in the row in front of you to hymn 103 Glory be to Jesus jump forward now in our readings, actually several thousands of years, to the time of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus who entered this world to fix our problems, to go against our greatest enemies and to defeat all of them for us. Early on in Jesus' public ministry, uh, Jesus made some very bold claims concerning his own death and also, and also deaths defeat, both spiritual death and eternal death. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he was talking about was his body. And and Jesus meant that. Destroy this temple, meaning the temple of his body. And I will raise it again in three days. Now, if somebody says that, again, destroy my body, murder it, kill it, and I'm going to bring myself back to life, it's a bold claim. And if it actually happens, and he actually rises from the dead, that's the type of person you want to follow and serve. And that is our Jesus now in John chapter 5, verses 24 through 30, Jesus makes an even bolder claim. He's talking about death. There, there's this thing called spiritual death. We're born that way, spiritually dead. And that, But Jesus said a time had now come in his ministry. People like you and me, hearing the gospel, the good news of who he is and what he came to do, and they're going to put their faith in him. And Jesus said... You know what's happened? They have crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. In Scripture, it's called the first resurrection. But Jesus said, Don't be surprised at that. For there's a day, it hasn't come yet, it's still in the future, when all who are in their graves are going to hear his voice, and they're all going to come back to life. Listen now to John chapter 5, 24 through 30. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming, and has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Please turn with me now back to your hymnal, to Hymn 106, Come to Calvary's Holy Mountain. Physical death was all around Jesus in his day, as it is today. I I have ministered to many people as they grieve the loss of a loved one. And going through the the grieving process, when a person does that, sometimes they become a little bit upset with God, or even angry with God. And sometimes people wonder, where is God? Is is this faith thing really real? In in the, the readings we have now, We have Jesus, God in the flesh, and we see his reaction to death. And we can see, again, how he reacts to death. But please keep in mind, Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when a loved one dies, and again, you wonder how God is feeling about it, please remember Jesus in these readings. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from that town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Again, his heart went out to her, literally in the Greek language, splankna, the, the deepest part of him. He had extreme compassion, concern for her. Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So I need to clarify something. What Jesus did to the widow's son was not resurrect him. That, that's something that happens in the future. It's going to be long lasting. It's going to be everlasting once that happens. Uh, but, but Jesus did uh, bring restoration of life back to this boy. He was dead, but he brought back life to him. He would live out his, his days. He would eventually die physically. Another example is, is, is John chapter 11, verses 32 through 44. In this case, with the widow at Nain, we don't think there was any connection between Jesus and this, this widow. He just came across her as she is going to bury her son. In this case, though, this is a very close friend of Jesus. And Jesus knows what it's like to have a very close friend die. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus was close to Lazarus and Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now the backdrop is is death. He has been dead for several days. They're feeling the pains of death in their heart. And I'm going to point out to you that that not only was Jesus deeply filled with compassion for them, but verse 38 says he was deeply moved. And and the Greek word that's translated deeply moved can be translated he was deeply angry. Not with the, the sisters, not with Lazarus, but with death. Jesus considers death an enemy. And mark my words, because they're words of scripture, he will destroy that final enemy death. One day for us. Again, this is not a resurrection, but it is a restoration back to life. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Please turn with me to hymn 389, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. Part 5, Jesus' reaction to his own imminent suffering and death. We're now in this reading, to the evening of his arrest, the last evening before his suffering and death. Jesus had life in him. He's the son of God. He's at the prime of his life. He's 33 years old. He did not have a death wish. He was not suicidal. He would want to to live because God created life. But Jesus knew his mission. He knew that, that he was called to do the most difficult job ever to lay down his perfect life in order to save sinners like you and me. It was not an easy task. Jesus knew The suffering that he was about to endure and not just the suffering, the physical suffering but facing the wrath of God the full payment of sin in our place I don't fear death I trust God, I trust what he says I know that the death is just a doorway to eternal life but I fear the process of dying and I think you probably do as well And in this reading, we see Jesus, the perfect son of God, and his death was going to be far worse than mine will ever be. But again, we see that he suffered. He was in anguish, thinking about what he was about to have to do. So Matthew 26, verses 36 through 45. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. We turn now to Hymn 100, A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth, verses 1 through 3. We jump forward in part six. So Jesus is arrested, the mock trial by the Sanhedrin. Early in the morning, they hand him over to Pilate, who tries him, knows he's innocent. He goes to Herod, doesn't say a thing, goes back to Pilate. But because of the political pressure, Pilate gives the word, crucify him. We pick up Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 16. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself." In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabakthani," which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. He said. I think most of you know who have attended Lamb of God over the last couple of months that we are going through a sermon series called Jesus, Son of God, a life like no other that will change your life forever. And I have broken the series down into three parts co- corresponding to the three years of ministry. First year, the inaugural year, Jesus baptized, coming onto the scene. Second year, year of popularity, where the word got out that this guy could perform miracles. And and overnight, he becomes like a rock star. Everywhere he goes, thousands of people show up. Even small towns, thousands and thousands of people. In that year of popularity, he reached hundreds of thousands, perhaps even over a million people. It truly was a year of popularity. But then Jesus told those who were following him, I am the bread from heaven. You need me. You need my flesh and blood to have eternal life. And that was a hard teaching for most people. And one by one, they they walked away from him. They rejected him. And the last few weeks, we've been covering this year of rejection. Well, tonight, this Friday of Jesus' death, really is the, the low point, if you will, of Jesus' year of rejection. He's being rejected by those who are following him. He's being rejected by the church leaders, being rejected by evil men surrounding him. But he's also being rejected by his heavenly Father. Jesus' death truly is a death like none other. Now, on the one hand, Jesus' death was similar to other people who were crucified. I pointed out last night, Monday, Thursday, that, that uh, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, something only a slave would do. Something else only slaves did, for the most part, they were the ones who were crucified. And here we have Jesus, uh, again, with that role, and he's being lifted up on a cross. Uh, the Roman Empire, the Roman government... They did crucify hundreds of thousands of people, mainly slaves. Occupied countries they went into, it was a show of power. If you try rebelling against Rome, they would lead you outside the city and they would lift you up on a cross and crucify you. So some of the pain that Jesus went through was common to a lot of people who have found themselves living their final moments on a cross. Wrought iron nails driven through his hands and his feet. Those wrought iron nails, either through the palm or probably the wrist, because the hand is considered from the elbow to the fingertip. <coughs> the, the Romans were experts. They, they knew where to avoid the, the major arteries in the wrist. But when they pounded those nails in, they would hit, more than likely, the ulnar vein, the ulnar nerve. And, and, and same with uh, the feet and the sciatic nerve. You ever had sciatic problems? So you probably had shooting pain, burning pain, filling his body, going up his uh, backbone and into his brain. We know, those who are crucified likewise, that uh, it's hard on the heart. It, the, the heart is, is, is pumping extra hard. The blood tends to separate over time as you're hanging on a cross. The main reason is, is that the person on the cross can breathe in, but they have a hard time breathing out, so, so toxins build up. In the body and in the blood, the blood begins to separate and it becomes very thick at spots where the the heart is chugging away trying to pump that blood. But then it thins out and it's too watery and then the heart races. So in those ways, Jesus' death was like the death of others and the death of the two men on each side of him on that original Good Friday. But that is where the similarity ends. Now, in our reading in, in, in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark, we're told that both of the criminals on each side of him were hurling insults. And that's true. Be- to begin with, they were both hur- hurling insults. But then one of them, his, he was conscience stricken. And, and, and he repents. And, and he, he looks over to the other thief and he says, You know what? We are getting what our deeds deserve. They had done something deserving of the death penalty. But not this guy. He is totally innocent. And Jesus looked over and said, I tell you the truth today, you'll be with me in paradise. But that thief knew something. And and it's one of the things, the very first thing I want to show you, that Jesus' death was a death like none other, because Jesus' death was truly an innocent death. He had lived a spotless life, tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin perfect. If anyone did not need to die, it was Jesus. According to God's word, Jesus himself reiterated it. You want to get to heaven? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do these things perfectly and guess what? You're not going to die. You go right to heaven. So, so Jesus, again, he, he in that respect, did not need to die. In 1 Peter 2.22, we're told, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So Jesus' death, again, was a death like none other because he was totally innocent of all wrongdoing. Yet he's being nailed to a cross and treated as a a criminal. Now, Now, Jesus didn't need to die, but Jesus knew that he had to die. He had to die if we would have any hope and any chance of getting to heaven one day. Now, the second thing that makes Jesus' death a death like another is that Jesus' death was a one-time sacrificial death for all mankind. A one-time sacrificial death for, for all mankind. The Bible says this in Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Again, God made him who had no sin, the innocent one, to be sin for us. God's exchange, that, that, that the sins of humanity placed on Jesus. So that Jesus' righteousness might be given to us. And you know what? It wasn't just for us. Those who are here who have professing faith in Jesus... Jesus did this for everyone. Even those today who do not believe in him. We're told in 1 John 2.2, 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. I studied this, and I brought it out at the Ash Wednesday service here at Lamb of God. Currently, we have more people alive than ever before. Over 7 billion people. And I studied it and wondered how many have preceded the 7 billion currently alive, including us. How many have preceded us in death? And and I researched it very thoroughly. And and those who study generations and how it all works, um, they came up with that between uh, 13 to 1 to 16 to 1, the dead outnumber the living. Think about that. 7 billion alive... But well, that's nothing compared to those who have preceded us in death. If you do the math, it's over 100 billion, perhaps 120 billion. <clears throat> Consider those alive today, 127 billion people. And Jesus is the one sacrifice. Sacrifice for the entire world. Unbelievable, but it is believable. And it it proves that Jesus' death was a death like none other. No other person has done that for you. No other person has died for the sins of all of mankind. Now, we said that, you know, look at as a whole, Jesus dying for the, the, the sins of every person. But let's make it personal. Jesus' death is a death like none other because Jesus died my death. And I want you to say the same thing. Jesus' death is a death like none other because Jesus died, and you say it, my death. I base that on Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, it's talking about baptism, Christian baptism, but we're told through the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul that we were baptized into Jesus' death, and that me personally, my sins were with him, and my sins were buried with him. So Romans chapter 6 so what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life for if we have been united with him in a death like this we we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his for we know that our old self was crucified and with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin now if we died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ, to God, in Christ Jesus. He's already died my death. I don't know anyone else who has done that. There isn't anyone else who has done that. Same with you. His death was a death like none other. <clears throat> now, now, Jesus' death was also a redemptive death. A redemptive death, meaning that, that he was paying a price. We all like positive wages. We, we like hearing from our employer, great job, and you know, giving a bonus, and you know, positive wage. But there are negative wages, and negative wages must be paid. If you drive 120 miles an hour on your way home, you're probably going to get pulled over by a police officer. You're going to have to pay a negative wage, probably put in jail, and a pretty hefty fine. The Bible says that there is a negative wage for sin, and that negative wage is death. Now, Psalm 49, it, it, it's an interesting psalm, and, and the psalm writer, through the Holy Spirit, says, I'm speaking to everyone. Rich and poor, young and old, male and female, I have a mystery for you. And the psalm goes on to say, here's the mystery. No mere man can redeem the life of another so that that other person lives on forever. No mere man can redeem the life of another. And you read that and like, okay, uh, that doesn't really help us because we need redemption. But the psalm goes on to say, but God will redeem my life. And there's the beauty of Jesus. Fully human. He's dying the death of, as a man, but he's also fully divine. God in the flesh. And, and, and Jesus, again, fully man, dying for my sins, yet fully God. And guess what? His death does count for us all. And it's a redemptive death. Our sins were paid for. And we now, through him, are pardoned and given everlasting life. Romans 6.23, the wages in his death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The fifth way that Jesus' death was a death like none other. Jesus' death was equivalent to e- eternal death. Now I want to jump to our text, verse 34. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an interesting thing that Jesus said. Up until this time, I'm amazed at how well Jesus kept himself under control. I mean, he's being crucified. Yet he's concerned about the men crucifying him. Father, forgive them if they know not what they're doing. He sees his mother and and John, and he's concerned about his mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your woman. Uh, Your your mother. And and he, he keeps it under control. Until this moment. At noon, darkness came over the whole land. And not just that the sun would behind a cloud. This is darkness, if you only think about Scripture, that darkness is associated with judgment. And, and at this very low point, again, being rejected, we see very clearly that Jesus is being rejected by God the Father himself. And, and Jesus, he, he, he shouts, and, and, and it can be translated that, that, that he is shrieking. It's as if he's being tortured. And and what he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the greatest pain that Jesus was suffering at that moment. He didn't say my hands and the nerves going, bringing the pain to my brain or my feet. Uh, he, He didn't say my head. I'm sure his head hurt with the crown of thorns on his head. He didn't say my side. He didn't say, my disciples, my disciples, where are you? He says, my God, my God. The greatest pain that that Jesus was enduring was the pain of being forsaken by God the Father. Jesus is divine. Jesus is eternal. The eternal is being forsaken by the eternal. And and, and what we have here, again, is a very unique death, a death like none other. Jesus' death was equivalent to eternal death. My friends, the Bible talks talks about it as the second death. The first death is our physical death. The second death would be a forever separation from God. It's a death that we do not want to die. And we don't have to. Because Jesus endured that second death already for us. Now... A couple more points as far as the uniqueness of Jesus' death. After Jesus died, of all people, it's a Roman centurion. He's witnessing all these things and and the supernatural darkness and the earthquake. And Jesus is dead. He pierces his side, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the Roman centurion, and I always always visualize John Wayne because of the movie that depicted this. But a Roman centurion, and, and he says... Surely, this was the Son of God. Again, a death like none other. God's naturally born Son, now dead on the cross. One last point that makes Jesus' death a death like none other. And it's a preview of Easter. What makes Jesus' death a death like none other, the final point. Horrible death. Our sins in his body. Buried. But the Bible says that his body did not decay. And his death only lasted three days. That's it. Three day death. He died my death. It was a three day death. And on the third day, he came back to life. I'm glad you're here this this evening. And I invite you back on, on Easter morning here at Lamb of God, either our sunrise service outdoor, on the other side of the altar here or 9.30 our festival service because we get to celebrate the fact that his death only lasted three days my friends, Jesus' death was truly a death like none other and as Jesus said it's finished paid in full it's all done amen We're now going to gather an offering. Again, if you would, please put the connection card into the offering plate. To the ushers, too, once the offering is gathered, please do not bring it back to the altar. Uh, You can just uh, put it in the office or uh, somewhere else. Now and forever, amen. Later, knowing that everything had Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of of the second. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced.